So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open that up to Second Peter. <clears throat> Second Peter 2, we'll finish up chapter 2 this morning. So let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray, uh, well, we give you thanks and praise that we have your word before us, um, that we have um, the truth of your word to trust in this morning, um, to, to teach us. Um, we have your spirit who is at work in our hearts and uh, giving us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have to show us from your holy word this morning. So God, I pray that you would uh, do a good work in us, that we would behold wonderful and marvelous things in your word this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So just like last week, uh, our text this morning, uh, Peter is still warning his readers concerning false teachers that are in their midst and false teachers that are to come within the church. So he, he wants them to be familiar with those who claim Christ, yet truly are not in Christ. Because this is the warning that, that Jesus himself gave to his disciples. So this is where Peter learned it from. So just listen to the description that Jesus gives uh, to his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So, according to our Savior Jesus, false teachers may look like other sheep. False teachers uh, usually have a malicious heart, uh, also known as ferocious wolves, that are intent on the sin they are committing to meaning they don't walk into it accidentally. Uh, false teachers bear bad fruit, even if they sound godly when speaking. False teachers, Jesus says, will one day receive the judgment that is due to them. And then false teachers are known, or we can recognize false teachers, by the fruit they bear. What is their life producing? And that's how you can Tell what a false teacher is. So remember, Solomon says there is nothing new under the sun, and that includes false teaching, false prophets. I read this quote from G.K. Chesterton last week. who said, there are no new lies, no new heresies. Man is simply not that creative. But oh, how we try. There's uh, several years ago, uh, an author named Brian McLaren wrote a book entitled entitled, A New Kind of Christian. And within the pages of his book, he seeks to present a Christianity that is altogether different than the one you find in Scripture. It's a new kind of Christian. And then even more recently, you have um, the priest Richard Rohr, who wrote a book called The Universal Christ back in 2019, 
which is still a very popular book. And I just, I'm, I just started reading this book. And I'm just going to read you the dedication page just to show you how far gone this man is. He says this, quote, I dedicate this book to my beloved 15-year-old black lab, Venus, whom I had to release to God while beginning to write this book. Without any apology, lightweight theology, or fear of, of heresy, I can appropriately say that Venus was also Christ for me. And then within, within the pages of Rohr's book, he seeks to present a Christ that is altogether different than the one you find in the Scriptures. So in these verses, Peter is, is, is rounding out his description of those who enter in amongst the true church for their own selfish gain, preaching a message that is altogether different than the true gospel. So again, like last week, Peter pulls no punches when he is denouncing these false teachers because he wants his readers to be vigilant to what and who they're dealing with because these have also made their way into the churches, as we'll see. So he goes into great detail describing who they are and how they live their lives. So we too must pay careful attention to Peter's words because this is for us as well. We are also Peter's readers. God intended for Peter's letters to be in our hands today so that we can learn this same lesson. That we too must keep a vigilant eye on those who would seek to preach a false gospel under the pretense of biblical Christianity. And really, what Peter is seeking to accomplish is to show his readers what sin looks like and what sin does to the human heart. So, so three details about sin that Peter addresses this morning. First, he addresses the arrogance of sin, or he highlights the arrogance of sin. Second, he addresses the delusion of sin. And then third, he addresses the impact that sin has upon us and that sin has upon those around us. So the arrogance of sin, the delusion of sin, and the impact of sin. So first, the arrogance of sin. Look at the second part of, of verse 10. Peter says, concerning these false teachers, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. So from the outset, the rebellion of the false teachers is communicated with these two words, bold and willful. And these two words are very close in meaning. So because they are so close in meaning, this could be translated as they are boldly arrogant. Boldly arrogant. So the authors uh, that I mentioned just a minute ago are a perfect example of bold arrogance. I mean, you have to be bold and arrogant to look at 2,000 years of Christianity and to say, I have a new vision. 
There's a new kind of Christian, or I have a, a new vision that there is, we've been looking at Jesus in the, in completely the wrong way. Even according to the scriptures. That's a bold arrogance. To think that you have some new insight that you can completely change the message of Christianity is arrogance. In verse 11, Peter gives an example of what their, uh, the, the uh, false teacher's bold arrogance looks like. Look there with me. He says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, Peter here is giving an unusual but important example to describe the level of arrogance that these false teachers have attained. So, and once again, he's pointing to angels. He's using angels in his, uh, in his illustration here. But this time, he is referring to evil angels here. Or we could say demons. So when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. And so now we ref- they are still angels, but we, we refer to them as, as demons. Those who are working for the corruption of the world alongside Satan. So, so the term he uses to describe angels here is glorious ones. Now you might say, why would you use the term glorious ones to describe demons or evil angels? Well, evil or not, all angels are glorious because God created them. So they are glorious beings. This is why Paul, in his uh, letter to the Galatians, he warns the Galatians uh, that even if an angel, a glorious one, comes to you declaring a different gospel, let them be under a curse. Because Paul is saying, look, if an angel comes before you, and if an angel came before you uh, uh, this afternoon, you would be dumbfounded. Because they would be so glorious. You would be tempted to worship them, and you would be tempted to listen to whatever comes out of their mouth. Paul says, don't do it. If they are proclaiming a different gospel, they are cursed by God. So what what Peter is communicating here is that these false teachers are so boldly arrogant in their sin that they truly believe they can blaspheme against angels. And the reason this is arrogant is because uh, even good angels don't believe that they themselves have the right to do that. So the angels of verse 11, the good angels, are stronger and more powerful than these fallen angels and are perfectly capable of bringing God's judgment upon them. Okay, But they recognize that it's up to God to judge, not them and therefore entrust the fate of demons to his judgment. So Paul tells us that, that, that uh, for the, in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, so God's wrath, not my wrath, not, not the wrath of angels, but the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodly. It is God who brings the judgment, ultimately. So the main point being here is that these false teachers are so arrogant in their sin that they don't even fear demonic powers. And they believe 
They're in a position even to judge them in a way that is only reserved for God himself. Their sin has led them to think this way. So in verse 12, in contrast to their high view of themselves, Peter compares them to irrational animals. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. So if you have a pet, you know this to be true. Your pets are, I don't care how much you love your pet, or how much stuff you give to them, or whatever it is, they are irrational beings. They don't know how to reason, and they don't know how to think logically, especially those doodle dogs. I know I can get an amen, at least from one person. Yep. (laughs) They're irrational. They can't do anything in the way that we can do it. And Peter says, this is how these human false teachers live. They blaspheme about things in which they know very little or nothing about. They criticize things they don't comprehend completely. And this includes Satan and his demons. They, they, don't, they, they take that very lightly. But it also includes other theological matters as well. Particularly how they view their sin. So look at verses 13 and 14. Peter says, Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So to them, sin has become so natural that everything they do and attempt is laced with its poison. When they sin, no longer is it done in the secret of the night where no one can see, uh, but in broad daylight, not caring who sees them sin. And then how they sin. They, they revel in their sin. They don't try to hide it even when they are feasting with the church, which Peter was saying, they are at the communion table with you in their arrogance. Which is another reminder that these were men and women who were inside these local churches in Asia Minor. They have eyes full of adultery. Literally, every woman they see is a potential candidate for an adulterous relationship. And they are insatiable for sin. Meaning that they had eyes that never ceased from sin. They were always looking for an opportunity to do so. And as they revel in their sin, Peter now shows us how delusional sin does make us. Which is what we'll look at now in our second point. Look at verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, Forsaking the way they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So one of the first ways in which you can tell that you or someone you know 
has allowed sin to put them in a delusional state is seen in the first part of verse 15 here. When Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. So I have, I have never met someone, anyone, who lives in sin well. Meaning, I've never met anyone in my 15 years of pastoral ministry who is insatiable for sin and, at the very same time, living as a godly Christian person. I've never seen that. Why? Because there's only two ways to live. You're either walking the right way or you are forsaking the right way. You can't do both. You can't serve two masters, Jesus says. You either hate the one and love the other. And these false teachers forsake the right way. It's much like Jesus says in Matthew 7 when he describes this, enter through the narrow gates. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. So to say that these have forsaken the right way, Peter implies that they once walked according to righteousness. That they once uh, understood what it meant to walk in the right way. So at this point, Peter uses an Old Testament example showing that the way these teachers now walk is in the way of Balaam. So, and I heard, I heard giggles as Joe was reading Balaam's story. So you know that it is, it is, a, isn't it an extreme story, but it's also an extreme example and an appropriate example that Peter uses here at this point in his letter. So Balaam was a prophet of God, a priest of, of God, but he was one that was motivated by greed. He wanted money for his services to the point that he was willing for the right price to speak a curse against God's people on behalf of the enemies of God. So when the king of God's enemy, of God's people's enemy comes to Balaam, he, he has the audacity to go to God twice and pray whether or not God would allow him to curse his people on behalf of this king. So you can see that, that, this, that this man was in a, a, delusional sta- a delusional state, that sin had driven him to this, that the sin of greed was in his eyes, that he would go to God in such an uh, audacious way. A delusional buffoon, Balaam was. One that God uses, uh, a, a, uses a, a, a ridicu- in a ridiculous way Uh, of rebuking him. He uses a donkey, an irrational animal, to speak to an irrational man. Because it's the donkey in the story who perceives the, the spiritual reality of the angel of the Lord, and it's Balaam who was oblivious to the danger he was walking toward. And this is the way Peter says in which false teachers walk. They are walking toward their own destruction and they don't even know it. 
They are walking toward their executioner rather than walking toward their Savior. But this is the way sin works, doesn't it? The Puritan pastor and writer Thomas uh, Manton describes sin's stepping stones. He says, first, we practice sin. Then we defend it. Then we boast of it. Sin is, then he says, sin is first our burden. Then it's our custom. Then it's our delight. And then our excellency. And because these stepping stones are, are leading you away from Jesus, they are leading you astray from God and at the same time placing you against him, making you his enemy. So if sin is your excellency, listen to me on that. If sin is your excellency, that means Christ is not. And maybe this is where you are today. And this is the first time you've heard just how bad off you actually are. So just consider me uh, the donkey in your story. Standing in your way at this moment, preventing you from walking toward your own destruction. Because if you are trapped in your sin, if sin is your excellency, that is the path you are on. You are walking towards your own destruction. But also see me, and hopefully those around you, your family members or your friends who who may have brought you, if this is where you are, as one guiding you toward the only one who can save you from this destruction, Jesus himself. Because as you move further down this path toward destruction, the impact that sin is having upon you will only become clearer to to yourself, but it also will become clearer to those around you as well. And this is what we see in our final points, the impact that sin has upon us personally, but also to those around us. Look at verse 17. Peter describing these uh, false teachers, he says, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So in these verses, you can see that the emphasis now shifts from the character or the sin of the false teachers to to the impact that their sins have on others. And Peter begins by showing how deceptive they actually are with their sin. He shows how their promises are both empty and contradictory by saying in verse 17, These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. So in other words, these false teachers are dead in their sin. And the only thing that they offer their followers is death. So if someone were to drink from their fountains the same way true disciples drink of Jesus who is living water, they would die thirsty because there's nothing there to drink because they have no living water and therefore have nothing to offer anyone except a ticket to destruction. So the problem is that they still try to offer something to their followers. You can see this in verses 18 and 19. They say, for speaking loud boast of folly, 
They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So the situation here is that these false teachers are taking advantage of new believers, those who are young in the faith. This this is their prey, okay? And so in his commentary on these uh, two particular verses, Tom Schreiner points out uh, three things about how false teachers seduce young converts. And this still takes place today in the church. So the first way is they spoke with a kind of assertive confidence that made the weak think they must have known what they were talking about. So this happens a lot within the church. Some are easily persuaded because someone stands in a pulpit before them on Sunday, or or that person has a large following or a large congregation, or that person has a has a has a popular podcast that millions of people are listening to, or that person is called pastor or priest or bishop that what they must say must be true and good and right because of those qualifiers. But Peter says this happens more often than not to those who are younger than the faith. That those, those who are young in the faith, uh, who are barely, have barely escaped the clutches of darkness, fall prey to this more often than not. That they are the ones that say, well, they have pastor before their name, so what they're saying must be true, must be right. They call themselves an apostle, so so it must be true, it must be right. They have a large church, so what they're saying must be good, because why would people come and listen to them if it wasn't good, right? And Peter says, no, that's not the case. And so these young ones are the ones that, that fall prey to these false teachers because they are easily swayed. So the second thing they did to seduce young believers is they also appealed to sinful human desires, arguing that it made no difference at all if we indulge our sexual appetites to the full. Now, that is a message for a lot of uh, American, quote-unquote, Christians would be drawn to. You can have your cake and eat it too. That's the message that they're giving. You can, you can still be a Christian. You can still escape the fires of hell and you can, you can live and you can still live out your, your sexual passions and do whatever you want to do. So to teach them essentially is what they're doing is, is that there is no judgment to come. God will not judge you. And, and, and because they have this message before them, this opens up all kinds of doors to sin. Because if there is no judgment, morality is irrelevant. Then we can eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die and we will not suffer any consequences. So do whatever you want. And this is what these teachers lured people with. And because the third way they, they seduce young converts is by maintaining their teaching was actually a pathway to freedom, arguing that the gospel originally received by them is nothing other than bondage. Now, if you remember what I said to you last week about Genesis chapter 3 and the pattern in which Satan, the first false prophet, the first false teacher kind of lays out before his people, this is exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. 
He was offering them freedom. Did God actually say, God didn't actually say you will die. God, God wants, is holding back from you. He, want, he doesn't want you to be free. He doesn't want you to know everything that he knows. So he's actually doing you a disservice. And I'm here to open your eyes to the reality of it. You won't die. And this is exactly what these false teachers do. Look at verse 19. They promise them freedom. You are free from, you are free from the, the, uh, the, the, the consequences of your sin. God will not judge you. He will not do that. He is a loving God. He will not judge you. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So Peter is saying, the freedom they promised was an illusion. Because how can one who has eyes full of adultery and have hearts trained in greed offer you freedom from anything? They themselves are not free, but enslaved to their own sin. They are mastered by it. Some scholars believe the teaching of these false teachers was actually a distortion of Paul's teaching in Galatians 5. And then in uh, 2 Peter 3, Peter actually brings Paul up here. So that's where they get the connection there. But it's when Paul says to the Galatian church, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So Paul talks about freedom there, you know, using the same language that the false teachers are using. But he goes firm, goes forward. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So what are these false teachers doing with Paul's words, with the very word of, of God? We know now they're distorting it. The same way in which Satan was distorting God's word in the very beginning. And yes, you are free. But to leave out that last part, Paul says, but you are not to submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery, to a yoke of sin. And this is precisely what these false teachers are doing. They are distorting God's word for their own gain, to, to gain followers. And now, using a series of proverbs in these last verses of chapter 2, Peter sort of sums up the impact that sin has on these false teachers and anyone who chooses to walk in their ways. Look at verses 20 through 21. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So let me just explain some things before we jump into those Proverbs. Peter's point here is to offer the warning that he, he's always given to his readers. This is not new for them. And that is to not return to the passions of their former ignorance, of their former life. 1 Peter 1.14, that's exactly what Peter says. Do not return to the, to the way of your former ignorance. And so he offers this, that warning here more aggressively by offering some very vivid illustrations as to what this looks like and what the final outcome of this will be if you turn back to your sin. So he says in verse 20 that, that if those who have escaped the defilements of the world 
through the knowledge of Christ, become entangled with them again. So going back to their former ignorance. So, so Peter is talking here, speaking about those who supposedly are converted. These are people who are supposedly converted. They use the language of Christianity. They call themselves believers. They do all of the right things, quote-unquote. But Peter says they will be worse off than they were the first time they were entangled with sin. Why? Well, because the first state, and you know this to be true, Christian, the first state, before you knew the gospel, you just simply did what you knew. You were a slave to sin, and you didn't really know it. And so you just did what was normal, which was to sin, which was to live a sinful lifestyle, which was to have uh, eyes that were full of adultery, which were to, 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 have, to be insatiable for sin in every single way. And it's worse when one who has been drawn out of that darkness, been introduced to the gospel, and then for them to go back, it's worse for that person because they have experienced the Christian faith. They, they understand the truth of the gospel. They know that it's glorious. They know that it's freedom. Yet they reject it. And the reason this is worse is because they are unlikely to return again. So Jesus' teachings in uh, uh, Peter's letters are heavily present. Uh, they're just weaved in throughout the letter. And, and in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus tells a parable of an evil spirit that is evicted from a man. And then this evil spirit wanders around looking for a new dwelling place uh, and finding none. He returns to the original habitation, to the, to the man that he was once possessing. But this time, the Spirit brings several other of his friends, some other evil spirits along with him, reclaiming what had been lost. And Jesus closes his, this short parable by saying, the last state of that person is worse than the first. In the first state, the man only had one evil spirit. The second state, he has seven. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 expresses it like this. For it is impossible, impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So this is why Peter is so adamant here concerning the outcome of walking away from the gospel back to a life of sin. This is why he uses these two vivid proverbs to describe what they are actually doing in verse 22. Peter says this, what the true proverb says has happened to them. This has happened to the false teachers and anyone who follows them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the so, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So now, we must remember, uh, culturally speaking, 
Peter did not live or write in a time where there was a billion-dollar pet industry, okay? We probably, most of us have dogs in our house. Some of us, I don't know why, have pigs in your house. But that was not the culture in which Peter wrote. Dogs and pigs in Jewish culture were considered unclean animals. They were not considered cute pets to be kept in your home and catered to. So Peter, when he is sharing these two Proverbs, uh, his Jewish audience perked up to what he was talking about. Because these Proverbs were meant to disgust Peter's readers concerning sin, specifically. A dog who vomits something up and then later returns to it is disgusting. So if you have an animal, if you have a dog and they have ever done that, I know for me it makes me gag. Like I almost throw up because they're eating it. It's disgusting. And this is this is the the, the picture that, that Peter wants them to see. A pig who has been washed clean, which is an allusion to baptism that he spoke about earlier in his letters, and yet returns to the mire which is more than just mud, because you think, oh, that's cute, that's what pigs do. This is like human excrement, it's, it's all sorts of stuff. So for a pig to do that is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. They are clean, they are washed, they're feeling good. Yet both of these Proverbs describe those who have confessed a faith in Christ and have returned to that which is disgusting and illogical which is their previous sinful lifestyle. They find it more attractive than the way of righteousness. They find it more attractive than the sacred commands that they once believed and followed. And now this is important. I know we have babies in here and things like that, and there's some distraction, which is fine. But I want you to listen hard here, because, because these vivid illustrations remind us that walking an aisle or saying a prayer, or even Christian baptism and taking the Lord's Supper do not ensure entrance into heaven. None of those things make you a Christian. These are not the marks of genuine belief. Peter has told us this in both of his letters. Peter said back in chapter uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, only those who continue to live a life of godliness will receive the reward of eternal life. This is, this is opposite to what the false teachers say. That you, that they're saying you will have eternal life and you can live in your sin. You don't have to do any of that stuff that Peter is telling you. But Peter is saying it is only those who live a life of godliness who will receive the the reward of eternal life. Only those who persevere in the faith. The perseverance of the saints is the true test of authenticity in Christianity. Now I must say something about the question this may provoke for some of you, and that is the question, uh, can Christians lose their salvation, Kevin? Is that what you are saying right now? And the answer to that is no. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 tells us the reason why that is true. He says, 
who by, speaking of Christians, those following hard after Jesus, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter is saying God himself guards the believer so that they will certainly receive their reward. Paul says to the church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, and I am sure of this, I am, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You are, you are doubly kept. You are, you are, you are in, you are, in, the same time that you are in, uh, the hand of Christ, you are also in the hand of God, Christian. You are protected in that way. So back to our text. If this is true, that a believer can't lose their salvation, why does Peter use Christian language to describe those who apostatize? Describe those who who once looked like they held to the Christian faith and have walked away from it. That's called apostasy. Well, the reason he does this is to show that these who fall away from the faith gave every appearance of being Christians. They had the right facade on. They confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were, they were baptized. They, they joined the church. They, they received communion. Yet these are, according to Peter, no longer considered to be genuine believers. And this is why it's important to be vigilant. Because those who these false teachers gave some evidence initially of a genuine faith, they were, they were saying the right things. People were amening what they said. They, people were agreeing with them. Yet as their sin revealed later, they were never truly part of the people of God. Now I can say real life example. So I've been in, in pastoral ministry for about 15 years and I can say this is true. And I think you, most of you can agree with me that you have friends and family members that you could say, what, yeah, they looked like they were professing Christ. They were walking uh, with Jesus. They were, they were doing the things that, that, that's required of a Christian. And now there's nothing. They do the exact opposite. And I have seen that over and over and over again in pastoral ministry. People who apostatize, who walk away from the faith and go back to their former ignorance. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, sums it up well. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So Peter is pointing out this very idea to his readers. To say those who fall away never really changed uh, their nature to begin with. Using the Proverbs again, Peter is saying, they remained dogs and pigs on the inside. They were always unclean and only seemed to have changed. Again, perseverance is the, is the only true test of genuine Christianity. 
Those who are, as Peter said in chapter 1, verse 10, being diligent to confirm their calling and election by practicing those qualities that we talked about a few weeks ago that strengthen their faith and draw them closer to Jesus. Those are the ones who are truly in Christ. Because they are readying themselves for the salvation to be revealed to them in the last time. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, even though we know it's, it is a hard truth. Uh, I know for a fact that we uh, have family members and friends that, that we could say uh, yes to this, that this is, this is the state in which they are in. They have returned to their former ignorance, that they are worse off than they were before. God, I pray that you would, as we listen to this warning from Peter, even as we enter into days, um, even in our own country, that are opposed to Christianity. The ideas of Christianity, the beliefs of Christianity, whatever it might be, that we would remain a people who are faithful to the gospel, come what may. That we would be faithful to make our calling and election uh, uh, true through the ways in which we live our life together. So do this in us as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.